Hi, welcome everybody. Alright, break it up. No more fun. Alright, welcome back everybody. Glad to have you back. Uh, this morning we're looking at Hebrews chapter 9. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. We're continuing our march uh, through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so this morning we're looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can flip it all the way to the right if you don't know where Hebrews is. You should hit the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and go back about seven books, and you'll find the, uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read the Word of God together. The passage says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that this word will endure. We thank you that this passage has been preached on for 2,000 years. We thank you that uh, should Jesus, should you tarry in coming back, that this passage will be preached uh, in our children's and our grandchildren's and our great-grandchildren's generation. All around the world, this passage will be read and preached. And so we thank you, Lord, that this word is timeless. And we thank you that there is not much more I can add to your word. But do give us understanding this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak clearly that you would give us insight into your word, that we may know how we can walk out of this room today applying your truth and putting it into practice so that we may be transformed into the, the likeness of Jesus Christ, that a dark world would see your image in us and that they may come to worship you. We pray that you would illumine your word this morning and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the hearers of this word, those who originally first heard it, uh, they were probably tempted 
to go back into a lifestyle of Judaism. They had been experiencing persecution as believers in Christ. They had had their property raided. They had had uh, several of their friends and people who worshipped with them had been arrested or persecuted or beaten or taken. And so the general idea at the time of the writing of Hebrews was uh, that there were those in the congregation or in the fellowship, in the group of people that were gathering, there were those who were tempted to go back into Judaism. They were tempted to go backward, to backslide because of the difficulty of what they were experiencing. Some of them were losing faith. Some of them were walking away from Jesus altogether. And so that's the condition in which the author of Hebrews is saying, persist in your faith. Don't give up. Don't go backward. What's behind you cannot satisfy you. An old way of life can't satisfy you. And Jesus said similar things. He says uh, that as a, a dog returns to his vomit, so a man returns to his sin. That's a gross image, right? Uh, he also said that, uh, that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That is, no one who is working in the kingdom, no one who is working and then uh, turns their back on Jesus is any longer fit for service. And so there is a general desire among Christians and among the New Testament believers that they would persist in faith. There is an entire doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. That is that those who are truly saved will be saved until the very end. That God will continually hold His own. And that they will continue to persist in faith though there be trials, though there be difficulties, though there be tests, though there be hardships, no matter what the circumstances, there will be those who will remain in faith. And there will be those who are revealed to have not believed. To have never believed in the first place. I think it's in 1 John that says they, they walked away from us because they were never truly of us. Right? And we see that and it's painful and it's hard. But for those who are here, not here in the room, but, but here in faith, here confessing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you've given your life to Him, you've repented of your sin. For those who are in faith, the message of Hebrews is persist. Even if it's a trial, even if it's a difficulty, even if it's a hardship, it's for the purification of your, uh, of your faith and for the endurance of your faith. James 1 describes that in detail as well. So what does that have to do with all of this uh, temple stuff? Um, what does that have to do with this passage? He's talking about lampstands. He's talking about curtains. He's talking about an old covenant. So how do we understand where this piece of Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 fits into that bigger picture of persist in your faith. Well, I think in some ways there is a, um, there is a simplicity to the Old Covenant. You know what I mean? There's a sense in which I sin, I go out to the barn, I take an innocent animal, and I, I offer it. There's the shedding of blood, my sins are forgiven, I go to a priest, There's, I'm grateful for something, so I prepare a meal offering, uh, I have a drink offering, I have a grain offering, the crops have come in, a prayer is answered, a, a covenant is kept, an oath is fulfilled, a blessing is received, and for every single thing according to the Levitical law, there was an offering. There was a procedure, there was a regulation, there was a way in which they did things so that they experienced the blessing of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, um, the favor of God. It, it was a mechanical sense. Does that make sense? You could see it. You could participate in it. You could walk over to the barn and you could get the animal and you could go through the motions. There was something beautiful about that that these Hebrews 
um, favored the Old Covenant. So much more that they saw Jesus, who fulfilled the Old Covenant, who died on the cross, that uh, there was a, an abolishment of animal sacrifice and blood sacrifice, and because Jesus was a greater sacrifice. And yet knowing that, they were still tempted to go backward into something habitual, something familiar. That's, that's something you can identify with, Right? You have a difficult time in, in Christ and, and you think it would only be easier if I wasn't uh, a believer. Maybe my life would be simpler if I didn't have to stand on the Word of God or if I didn't have to adapt my life to His revealed principles. Maybe my life would be easier if I just kind of went with the culture. If I just acknowledged things that the culture acknowledges as not sinful or if I just said that, that we could worship God in a way that we decide is, is our own. But there's something about this passage that describes a couple of points I want to get across. Now, the first thing I want you to see by the time we end here is that God has a prescribed way of worship. And there's blessing for the person who worships in the way that God desires to be worshipped. The second thing I want you to see is that the Old Covenant was not uh, sufficient to satisfy the conscience of sinners. It was weak. We'll get into this more next week. But it was weak. The blood of a bull, the blood of a a calf, the blood of a lamb, the blood of a pigeon, the blood of a dove, all the different sacrificial ways, it never really cleansed their conscience the way Jesus came. So I'm going to end there. It's going to be a while before we get to the ending point. Uh, So let's follow along. Let's go back through. I'm going to make a few remarks. I can't go into all the detail. And we're not going to flip back and forth into Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. Sorry, um, there's probably a seminary class that could do this way better, uh, but I don't want to just do an info dump on all the old covenant things. But we are going to talk about a few things. Uh, so let's look uh, at this passage again in a little bit more detail. We'll break it apart, then we'll put it back together. And I want you to see clearly that the author is determined to show how Jesus' work in the heavenly temple is fundamentally superior. It's way better than anything that the old covenant offered. And for you, there's nothing you can go back to that is better than Jesus. Not a lifestyle, not a habit, not a a different generation. Uh, There's there's no going backward once you're in faith in Christ. Uh, It is the best that you will ever experience uh, that God offers. There's not a better way. There's not another way. What we have in Jesus is the best. It's superior to anything else that you would go back to. So let's describe and understand how that fits into this first covenant comparison. We understand uh, covenant theology, right? Uh, Covenant theology describes and views the redemptive work of God through a framework of various covenants, right? A covenant is just a contract. It's just an agreement. Uh, And so when we look at God's redemptive activity, uh, we view it through the framework of what's called covenant Theology. There are a few different frameworks, uh, dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, progressive uh, and, and new covenant theology. But the one that's generally acceptable is this idea of covenant theology. And that just simply views the, the redemptive work of God, that is God wants to save you, and He does so through various periods of contracts and agreements and covenants. The first covenant is the covenant of redemption. That is, He says, uh, before creation, when the Godhead was together, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together, they agreed amongst themselves as one God. I don't get it, neither do you, it's okay. But they agreed that if we create, we will have to redeem, and the redemption price will be high. 
And so there is an understanding from the very beginning. Uh, Colossians says before the foundation of the world, he what? He chose us in him. Some of you are not comfortable with predestination and with God's forechoosing and all those things. I'm not here to unpack all that or to stir up a big Calvinist and Arminian fight. I don't want you guys throwing food at each other at the thing downstairs in a little while. Uh, We're not stirring up some sort of tulip debate, but there is just a basic biblical understanding that God had foreknowledge and chose before the creation of the world. Whether you believe it or not, it's in the Bible. You have to tear out pages if you don't believe in predestination. You may not understand it. You may not even like it. But I'm not going to get into it all here. You're welcome. So that first covenant is amongst the Godhead that, that I will redeem. Uh, The second covenant is after creation. He tells Adam and Eve, this is the agreement. If you obey, there's life. If you disobey, there is death. It's called the covenant of works. And aren't you grateful that we don't live under the covenant of works? Don't think to yourself that you would be any better than Adam and Eve. (laughs) Don't think to yourself that God gave you full freedom in a beautiful garden and you had the full option to choose whether to um, obey or disobey that you would do any different than they did. It's not because the fruit was shiny, right? It wasn't an apple, by the way. Scripture never says that in Genesis, all right? Uh, It's just a fruit, and it was forbidden. There was nothing inherently different about the fruit, except that it was forbidden by God. And He said, don't eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And the tempter came and said, you can be just like God if you eat this fruit. And they were tempted and they fell. So that covenant of redemption and then the covenant of works Both were uh, inaugurated. And then came the next covenant. And that is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace basically describes a promise of eternal blessing for those who believe in Jesus and are obedient to God's word thereafter. It's a covenant of grace. And for those in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic covenant, under the Abrahamic covenant, under the Noahic covenant, under the Davidic covenant, you don't need to know all that, but under all those different covenants, they all are under that categorical topic of the category, the covenant of grace. That is that they were looking forward to the redemption that was in Jesus Christ. Right? If you're Noah and your children, you enter into the ark and it shelters you from the, the, the destruction of God's wrath. That was looking forward and pointing forward to Jesus, the ark that shelters us from God's wrath. If you're in the Mosaic Covenant, you understand the covenant uh, by, we talked about a little while ago, the, the Exodus and how the sprinkling of the innocent blood of the Lamb that covered the doorpost, that was our Passover innocent Lamb, that when John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ, he says, look, there's the, the Lamb of God that what? Takes away the sins of the world. You see, every old covenant points forward to what? To the coming of Jesus, to a new and better covenant. Even when Jesus, I read it and I wondered how many people in the room noticed it when Jesus was taking the Lord's Supper for the first time when they were, he was doing the Lord's Supper there, when he said, this is the, the cup of what? The new covenant. Don't you think those Hebrews would have perked up their ears and said, a new covenant? We've been under the Mosaic covenant for all this time. And they probably heard it completely different. But through all of those covenants, Through the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, until now in Jesus, the new covenant, every covenant improved upon the last. There was a greater blessing, a greater promise of God's presence, a greater understanding of His Word, a greater understanding of His will and how we should live. And even now, we're looking forward to a better existence, right? 
One that Revelation promises will come, that at the consummation of time, that after the final judgment, that we will be in heaven with God and there will be what? No more, no more tears. No more pain. No more crying. We'll be in the presence of God. We won't need a sun or a moon to give us light because the glory of God will give us light. It's Revelation 20 that there's a new heaven and a new earth that in the ushering of the kingdom of God, there will be newness and we will be redeemed. We'll finally experience for those who persist in faith, the salvation of your soul. The one thing that everybody hopes for. That if I died today, do I know for sure I'd go to heaven? That's the covenant that's coming. But until then, there's not a better one. What Jesus offers is sufficient and it's the best. You won't find in any other religion a better access point to God. And for some of you, that's troubling. Look at verse 1. He says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. He's describing the old covenant had a prescribed way in which they were to worship. There was no room for creativity. Okay? Dr. Moeller, Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, said it this way, Israel was not to speculate or innovate or experiment with what kind of house or what kind of objects for worship God preferred. And also, God through Moses prescribed specific covenantal responsibilities and a precise place in which to perform them. Unlike all the pagans and all the foreign nations that lived around them, the Israelites were not to worship God however they wanted The one true and living God specifically told Israel how and where to worship Him. His regulations for worship expressly authorized by His Word and a failure to abide by them led to grave consequences. That's Leviticus 10.1. There was no room for feeling. There was no room for kind of faking it. There was no room for innovation. God was not asking the worshipers to just find their own way to Him. To worship Him in whatever way they felt best. I'll never forget uh, a few years ago when I planted the church Ridgeline in the sort of planning phase in 2012. We were meeting as a small group and, and I had all these great ideas that I was just offering to God about different ways that we could do things, about different ways that we could have a worship service, about different innovative ways that we could do baptisms. And, and finally, after a long time and after a lot of research uh, in different ways, I found ancient archaeological evidence that, that in the early church, in the first and second and third centuries, they would baptize a new believer in a cross-shaped baptistry. And I thought, how cool is that? that they, would, they would enter into this cross-shaped cut out of stone thing in the floor and, and it was filled with water and they would go back as though they were laying on a cross and come back up. And I thought how cool that was and how neat it would be to kind of renew that sort of um, old uh, tradition that was a part of the first church. And after I'd made all these plans and showed all these cool things, finally the Lord just said, I would just rather you baptize somebody. <laughs> I'm not looking for your innovation. I'm not looking for your creativity. I'm not looking for you to improve upon something. I'm not, I had all these ways in which I was going to take different um, Lord's Supper articles from different nations around the world, different uh, baskets and cups from different places and as a way to weave in missions to the Lord's Supper. And, and I had all these innovative ways that I was going to try to do things. And finally, the Lord just basically kind of slapped me and just said, Stop. I'm not interested in you improving upon the way in which I want to worship. I've given you two ordinances in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. There are two ordinances, two things that the church is called to do. What? 
Baptism and observe the Lord's Supper. And I don't need your help, Gibson, in, in doing them in a cooler, innovative, I don't, we don't need a, a slide in here. We don't need an inflatable pool that's heated. And we don't need to do lights and fog machines. Just, we don't have to have a special, it doesn't have to be homemade bread with garlic in it. It could just be, it doesn't matter. I'm not looking for your creativity. I'm not looking for your innovation. Why don't we have exotic bread and delicious flavored juices and wines for the Lord's Supper? Why don't we have ornate decorations in this room? Or innovative worship experiences with multimedia and light shows and fog machines and elaborate set designs? Why are we not utilizing the latest technology? Why are we operating with HD on the sides and like, you know, an old projector in the middle? Why, why aren't we doing more innovative things? Why are we not building multi-million dollar cathedrals and chapels? Listen, the simple answer is that the worship of God and the presence of God is enough. And if you have to have all that stuff to worship, and you can't worship without it, are you really worshiping God? Do you know where the New Testament believers worshiped? Wherever they, wherever they weren't going to get beat down, right? Wherever they weren't going to get stoned, they would go to catacombs, there's an entire church that existed in caves, uh, in underground tombs, worshiping among dead bones and bodies. Uh, wherever they could find space for, for God's people to gather around the exaltation of Jesus Christ and to hear the preached word of God and prayers uttered and accountability shared. And, and that fellowship together, the, the important thing was what? It was Emmanuel. It was God with us. Do you think they were wowed by the caves in which they chose to, to worship? And so if you come into a place like this and you think, well, I don't like the pew and I don't like the two-tone color carpet and the, the difficult, I don't like the crack in the ceiling. You didn't notice it until I just said that. <laughs> I don't like all the stuff that's here. Listen, the important thing is that is God with us? Is the Word of God being preached? Is Jesus being exalted? Are we keeping each other accountable? It's that heart of worship that God desires. It's not, it's not the environment that enhances worship. It's the person that's being worshipped. And if you can't worship God in the presence of God, within the community of God, around the words of God, no amount of external flair is going to help you. I mean, you might as well just go to a, a movie theater. You might as well go to the woods. You might as well go to the river. You might as well go to the mountains. You might as well go somewhere else. I hear this a lot. I worship God in my own ways. Uh, the pl- best place I worship God is in a tree stand or at a fishing place or in the mountains or on the beach. Listen, I, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. If you've said that before, just hear my heart. I'm not ragging on you for that. What I'm saying is that people can use that as a way in which they... Um, the way in which they justify idolatry. Because if your God never disagrees with you, if your God is always uh, into the same things that you're into, if He's always showing up in the environment that you love best, and he, He never shows up in the place for you in a place like this, where He has prescribed the preaching of the Word of God around the exaltation of Jesus, the living Word of God, that if you can't worship here, but you can only worship in a way that perfectly fits your personality, Listen, the truth is you may not be worshiping a God at all. You may be worshiping an idol. You may be worshiping an idol. And so if the best place for you to worship is in a tree stand, listen, you may not be worshiping God at all. You may just be worshiping yourself. 
God had a prescribed way of coming to him. He had a prescribed way of coming to him. And even now in the covenant in which we are, are now living under, there is no name under heaven by which you may be saved. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man what comes to me but through Jesus. But there is one way to salvation. That's not a popular message these days. Can a good Muslim go to heaven? Can a moral Hindu go to heaven? Can a moral atheist go to heaven? The biblical answer is no. You may not like that. A few years, I might be arrested for saying that. But I I can't change the Bible to make you feel better or to make me feel better. The truth is, God has prescribed a way in which we must worship and a way in which we must come to Him. And it's offensive. It's offensive. And so in the Old Testament, there was a prescribed way. There was a lampstand. There was a bread of the presence. There was the holy place. There was a second curtain, the most holy place. Uh, There was the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides, the mercy seat, the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, the tablets of the covenant, the cherubim. All those things were prescribed in the way in which the Old Covenant believers had to approach God. And it was insufficient. It has expired. There is no going back to that way in which we can approach God. Now, in the New Covenant, Jesus said, it is but through me can you experience life. The second point I wanted to make before we close is that that all those things were not sufficient to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That means in all their offerings and in all the blood that was spilled and all the animals and all the graphic ways in which Jesus was pointed forward to, that at the end of it, it left something to be desired. There was an itch that wasn't scratched. Is that right? Scratched, itched? I was good. There was an itch that wasn't scratched, right? There was something left that wasn't fulfilled, something that wasn't desired. It didn't perfect their conscience. Do you know what it's like to have a clear conscience? To be able to sleep at night at peace with God and at peace with people? You know, as an atheistic, uh, immoral teenager that just lived my life any way I wanted to, do you know what finally brought me to a point of repentance where I finally prayed a prayer to God? As an almost 17-year-old, the thing that brought me to my knees, literally, was the point in which I couldn't sleep any longer. I just couldn't sleep. My mind would not stop racing about all my problems, about all the difficulties I had, about my situation. Has anybody ever been there? Where you just have no peace and you don't have a clear conscience at all. The worship of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, offers something the Old Covenant could never offer. And that is complete peace with God. That is being able to lay your head on your pillow at night, knowing that your sins are forgiven. Friend, don't ever underestimate the value of a clean conscience. Of being able to to go to bed with peace with God, wake up in the morning and worship and say, His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. To be able to know that you have peace with God is is a gift that those outside of Christ would love to have. Would love to have peace with God. All these things in all these ways describe how the new covenant under Jesus, the, the blessings of Christianity that we're experiencing now, the inclusion of Gentiles, right? I'm not an Israeli. I'm not a Jewish person. It's a Middle Eastern faith that we follow. A Middle Eastern dark-skinned Messiah. And this Jesus that we follow 
As you look more intensely into Him, you will find the salvation of your soul. As you look to Him in faith, and you will find nothing better for the satisfaction of your soul. There's nothing better that will satisfy you. Everything else is just out of reach. Father, we thank You, Lord. We thank You that in Christ Jesus, You offer us the greatest gift that could ever be offered. That there isn't anything better, that there's not a better covenant, that there's not a better way or means to have a relationship with you, that outside of Jesus Christ, there is no other way for us to have peace with God but in Christ Jesus. And just like Noah's family entered the ark and were sheltered from the wrath of God, for those who enter into Jesus Christ, into a relationship, faith in Jesus Christ, that there is the shelter from the wrath of God. So I pray that all those who hear my voice, that they might shelter themselves in the shadow of your wings that they would find salvation in Christ alone. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation. They would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. And I pray for those who are tempted to go backward, to walk away from Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the strength to endure and persist. That they would persist by faith. And we pray that you would keep them until the day of salvation. That they would run their race and finish well. I pray, Lord, for those who have wandered and strayed. I thank You that it's not too late. That there are those who are not here this morning who used to be among us and that it's not too late for them to come back. That there are those loved ones who we pray for often uh, that are wandering, that are confused. I thank You, Lord, that Your Word says that, that Your mercy is still available, that they can come to faith, that they can repent, and that they can renew their faith in You. And I pray that they would. I pray that our love for them and the truth of Your Word would draw them back to Yourself. Would You use this as a redemptive body? I pray that those who come into this church, whether they know You or not, would experience the joy of redemption. And that this would be a body that is instrumental in Your work here on earth, in the spreading of the Gospel and the, the, the expansion of Your Kingdom. Let us be faithful. A faithful remnant to Your Word. Faithful to the Gospel faithful to worship and faithful to Your Word. Let us be light in dark places. And thank You for what You're doing here. We ask for Your continued presence and work in Jesus' name. Amen.